So if the only one you know are the fast food ones, you have a problem. Hey, we haven't stood for a little bit. Would you stand with me for a moment? Just shake the hand of someone right next to you. Welcome them. Say, good to have you at East Bay. Hey, you can be seated. Slogans are a part of everyday life uh, for the USA. You see them everywhere. You see, you know, businesses, restaurants, uh, products, politics. Everyone has a a slogan of some sort, you know, one way or another that kind of helps define them. You know, campaign slogans are not new In fact, they've been traced back to the 1840 presidential campaign of William Henry Harrison. And I don't know if you can remember, we're going to do a little quiz of our own here this morning, uh, different slogans that politicians have had over the years. So put on your big brain this morning. Let's think through a few of them. I'm going to give you some that I know you don't know. And if you know them, you uh, are really old here today, okay? Like in 1844, James K. Polk, his campaign slogan, you ready for this one? It's riveting. Reannexation of Texas and reoccupation of Oregon. Henry Clay ran up against him, and here was his campaign slogan. Who is James K. Polk? (laughs) But Polk won, so everyone knew who Polk was after that. Grover Cleveland, this was in the day that um, jingles were the big thing for slogans, and Grover Cleveland had this slogan jingle against James Blaine, and it was this, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. (laughs) I think this is where rap music came from. Could you hear it in there? And then James Blaine thought of his own. It says, this is terrible. Ma, ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. Well, Grover Cleveland won that one. Anyways, that was was really bad. Calvin Coolidge had the best name for a slogan. Keep cool with Coolidge. Isn't that just the best name for a slogan? Keep cool with Coolidge. Herbert Hoover, right around the time of the Great Depression, his slogan just inspired hope in the hearts of everyone in America at that time. It was this, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That really wasn't good, was it? That wouldn't inspire, hey folks, I want a chicken in every one of your pots. Let me tell you, it just doesn't make any sense here, but... Hey, now we're going to get into some that you may know. Let's do a little quiz. I'll say the slogan. You see if you know the person. 
Sorry for all you born after 1992. Here we go. I like Ike. Eisenhower, yeah. Not just peanuts. Jimmy Carter, good. You guys are getting there. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Um, Ronald Reagan. It's morning again in America. A little tricky one there. That's four years later, Ronald Reagan's return. Um, last one, I'll give you this one. You got to think hard on this one. <clears throat> Ross for boss. Yeah, some of you tried to forget that one, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, oh no. So slogans historically came from Scottish descent, and it, and it means a battle cry. It, and it has throughout the years kind of um, morphed to mean this. And if you want to grab your study guide with us, let's work through this together this morning. Slogan has come to mean a phrase expressing the aims, nature, or distinctives of an individual or an organization. The aims, nature, or distinctives of an individual or organization. Slogan is what you claim to be all about. Slogan, you're saying this is our identifying feature. Now here at East Bay Calvary, we have a slogan mission statement and I hope it's more than just what we say. But our mission statement slogan is more and more and better disciples. And it's something that we pray drives us and pushes us to be more of what God has called us to be. And these next three Sundays, we're going to be working through slogans of three kings of Judah from the Old Testament. And here's their names. I'm going to give them to you right now. One is Hezekiah. One is Manasseh, and one is Josiah. And all of this, right after we just got done with a three-part series in Obadiah. Isn't that something? It may be a tough time to invite people to your church. Hey, what are you going to be studying? Uh, Obadiah? But don't worry, because right after that's Hezekiah. You know? And it gets riveting, because then it goes on to Manasseh. You know, It actually is going to. So just fasten your seatbelt for this. It's going to be great. I'm going to give you a moment, if you would, grab your copy of the scriptures or your iPhone, iPad, iPod, whatever it may be. Look up 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18, and one way to find it is somewhere around the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Take a left, if you would, at that point, about another halfway, and you're going to see you'll be in the neighborhood of 1 Kings, 2 Kings and we'll be in chapter 18 in your copy of the scriptures here this morning. Here's a little bit of background to Hezekiah. So grab your sheet, just a few things you can write in that blank that we can know about Hezekiah, who was this king of Judah. Hezekiah was the 13th successor of King David. King David was probably the prime, most known and celebrated king in all of Israel, and at the time that King David was reigning, the nation of Israel was one. And what happened long before Hezekiah came on the throne is the nation of Israel divided into a northern kingdom 
called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And each of these had its own king and its own capital. So it got a little confusing after Solomon because we would talk about Israel, but really in that case, Israel was the northern half of the nation of Israel, and Judah was the southern half, and each had their own king, each had their own capital. The capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom of Judah was Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem and Judah was where Hezekiah was reigning. Here's a couple other uh, notes here for you. Hezekiah was born about 740 B.C., and he took over the throne of Judah when he was only 25 years old. And he reigned for 29 years. A couple other things about Hezekiah. He was a part of holding off the Assyrian conquest of Judah. So Assyria was a powerhouse at that time and in that day. And folks, they were just pummeling nations. And they had come in and they did a number on the northern kingdom, which was Israel. And they were staring right down at the southern kingdom of Judah. And they had the crosshairs on them. They wanted to do something. And Hezekiah was known for holding off the Assyrian conquest. He also is known, and it was a part of the holding off of that, he built this tunnel. And interestingly enough, one way that people and nations would go about Winning is, even if they couldn't infiltrate the country, they would, they would surround it, they would cut off food and water supply. A genius. After a while, you're going you're gonna to starve these people out. They're going to give up. Or they won't have their water, and they're just going to give up. Well, Hezekiah was on the front side of this, and he decided he was going to build a tunnel. It was over 577 yards long, it was in a mountain about 150 feet from the surface. And it came from springs that were outside of Jerusalem. And it brought water all the way, snaking into Jerusalem and ending at the Pool of Siloam. It's called the Siloam Tunnel. I've got a couple slides on this. It would be interesting for us to be able to visualize what this looked like. You can see the line of where the water came in from outside the city. It certainly wasn't a direct line, and a lot of it was adjusted by the contour that they were dealing with in the rock. And the next one will give you a really neat picture. This is what it was like inside the tunnel. In fact, it's still open, and many people go through it now. Here's the cool story. So these guys, with no power equipment in any way but with picks and shovels and horses and carts they were just wailing on this solid rock in this mountain day after day after day it's believed it could have taken up to four years to build this tunnel and one started at the north end one started at the south end and they both were working their way through and snaking as best as they can and then finally the day came and they were about five feet away from each other. And they could begin to hear the... On the rock on the other side. And then a crack opened up. And here's what they wrote. This is really cool. 
This is if you go into the tunnel, there is inscription in old Aramaic, and this is what it says. This is the story of the boring through. While the tunnelers lifted the pickaxe, each toward his fellow, in other words, one on the north and one on the south, they were doing that, and while three cubits remained yet to be bored through, that's about four and a half feet, there was heard the voice of a man calling his fellow, for there was a split or a crack in the rock on the right hand, and when the tunnel was driven through, the tunnelers hewed the rock, each man toward his fellow, pickaxe against pickaxe, and the water flowed from the spring toward the reservoir for 1,200 cubics or 1,800 feet. Over 580 yards was this tunnel. And the height of the rock above the head of the tunnelers was 100 cubics or 150 feet. And that inscription remains in that tunnel to this day. It's quite an accomplishment. Let me just level with us here, because probably not many of us are familiar with Hezekiah. His slogan was not beat Assyria. His slogan was not build a tunnel. I'm going to give you his life slogan in just a moment. At this point in time, Israel and Judah severely violated the first commandment. Let me teach you the first commandment. Everyone hold your finger up like this, like this little light of mine. It's really simple to remember. The first commandment is there is one God. And that one will help you remember. There's one God. And it mentions that we shall have no other gods before us. You can put your finger down. There's only one God. You shall have no other gods before you. And at this stage in the game, Judah and Israel were so off in left field, gang. They not only started to tip their thoughts toward idols, these people for 200 years actually got to the point where they replaced all of their worship places to God, to Yahweh, and they were replaced with foreign idols, idols of the nations around them. <clears throat> there were pits where they not only burned incense, but they would even sacrifice their own children to various gods of the nations around them. These people were way off. And, and all of their thought, their poles, their figures, their altars, their statues... All of it eclipsed God, the very God that got them to the point where they were. This is the state of Israel. This is the climate that Hezekiah came into where at the age of 25, he took the throne of Judah. And here's what happened. In 2 Kings chapter 18, I want to read verses 1 through 8. Is it a little warm in here? Okay. One more stand. That way you don't fall asleep on me. Look at these words here, and we're going to read verses, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of 2 Kings chapter 18. This is how it reads. In the third year of Hosheah, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. That's what we're going to look at today. So have a seat. Hezekiah had a life slogan. Hezekiah had something he was known for far beyond the Assyrians and far beyond a tunnel. And here's the life slogan. I want to give it to you. It's there in your notes. This is something that we really need to consider and think about for ourselves. Hezekiah's life slogan was this. Don't manage your idolatry. Destroy it. Don't manage your idolatry. Destroy it. To manage something would be to, to... reduce, maybe begin to phase out, to limit it, to keep it within control. And for Hezekiah, that was not his MO. When he stepped onto the scene and he saw what was going on, Hezekiah said, we can't manage this. We need to do away with it. This is destroying us. And if we don't destroy it, it will take us. And as I look through this, I wanted us to to begin to consider three values that drove Hezekiah's slogan. And I'm going to move through these a little bit quicker. But let's capture these and really think about it. Here's number one value that drove his slogan. Did you see in verse 3 the statement about him? I just love this. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so here's number one. Write it down on your notes. Number one is be concerned with God's opinion, not man's opinion. Be concerned with God's opinion, not man's opinion. Certainly him stepping on the scenes at 25... And within, folks, within three weeks had toppled every idol in Judah. He did not dilly-dally around. That probably was not right in the eyes of many in Judah in that day who relied in these idols, who really believed these things were a help to him. 
And he was a proverbial bull in the china shop in a really good way. And boom, he just dropped them all. It probably wasn't right in the eyes of the neighboring nations. Here he had adopted, or Judah had adopted all of the idols and the gods of neighboring nations. And it was a way that they kind of appeased each other. And Hezekiah came in, boom, dumped them all. People in Judah are wondering what's going on. I'm sure all the neighboring nations are like, what? What's he saying about our gods? And not only that, it was not right in the eyes of the kings that immediately preceded him. There was polling data back then. I'm sure it would have been against him. His popularity rating would have dropped to an all-time low. Some of what he did, how he did it, may not have made good sense. Others would have felt his value system was out of whack. But the deal with Hezekiah is he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was concerned with God's opinion, not man's. So, I did a little bit of research. Columbia um, University researcher Sheena Iyengar found the average person makes about 70 decisions a day. Think about it. 70 decisions a day. Each year, over 25,500 decisions you make. For the dating couple, probably half of those decisions are, where are we going to eat? I don't know. Where are we want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? You know, anyways. <clears throat> Think about this. Over a course of a 70-year-old person's lifetime, almost 1.8 million decisions we make. And you have to make them. I mean, you're here today for some decisions that you made. You decided to get up. Decided to get dressed. Decided to shower. Hopefully not in that order. That really doesn't make sense, does it? Decided I want to come and worship. Some decisions are hard. One person said, when you're in charge, ponder. It says, when you're in trouble, delegate. It says, and when you're in doubt, mumble. And when we make decisions... What shapes them? Have you thought about what shapes your decision? What, what forms why you do what you do? And the more we think about this, is it public opinion? There's a tremendous amount of pressure from those around us. Do I end up thinking, boy, what will they think? What will they do? How will they view me? Will I be accepted? I mean, these are legitimate and big things that oftentimes we utilize in shaping why we make the decisions we make. And for Hezekiah, a decision-shaping value that drove him and drove his slogan is this. Be concerned with God's opinion, not man's. Would you say that with me? Be concerned with God's opinion, not man. 
Here's the second one. The second one. I love this one. I learned this one at a young age, and I'm still learning it at an older age. Here's the second value that drove Hezekiah's slogan. You can't talk your way out of something you behaved yourself into. You can't talk your way out of something you behaved yourself into. And wives, no looking at your husbands right now. But you know, when we behave, talk is, it is cheap. Promises, nice, but we want to see performance. When Hezekiah stepped on the scene, here's what happened. He didn't give promises, and he didn't just make statements. He did some things. In fact, look at verse 4. Look at these verbs. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had um, held up. He had made it. And that was even God told him to make it. And so here for these 200 years, all of the mass of idols that had developed and, and, and Hezekiah realized, you know, we just can't talk our way out. of. Let's not just get together in the, in the temple and say, you know what, we should do away with idol worship and let's talk about that. It was action. He meant business. This guy stepped up to the plate and said, we need to demolish this stuff. And here's the things that he demolished. Number one, he demolished foreign idols. You know, he took the idols that were the gods of the nations around him and he toppled them, affecting temple worship and what they had done for two centuries. And with that... <clears throat> Within this first three weeks of his reign, temple service was restored and the idols were gone and he got the priest up and going again in this temple worship and they were turning this thing around. But this was interesting to me. Not only did he topple the foreign idols, do you notice that he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. That's a big deal. Realize there were even religious relics that these people were looking at and worshiping above God. They looked at the bronze snake that was instituted way before, and Moses had sent up for people to be healed by it, and it ended up that he realized they were looking to that snake more than they were God, and he even said, Let, let's get rid of that thing because that is becoming an idol. No longer is there just one God he realized, no, 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 this bronze snake was becoming a god. And even the religious tradition had to eclipse God, and he got rid of it. For Judah, idols were pagan. Idols were religious. And you notice idols don't even have to be bad. They can be good. They just need to take God's place to be an idol. So let's think about it. <clears throat> What would be an idol for us? So I've got a little acrostic there. You see that? 
I-D-O-L-S. What would be an idol for us? So here we go. Let's fill these in. I want us to think about idols being I items. They can be items. They can be what we own or what we possess. We've all heard the thought how we don't want to possess too much, and oftentimes our possessions possess us. Idols can be items. Here's D. They can be duties. Our jobs, our responsibilities, our role, our status, all of these things, duties can be something that ultimately can rise and and they become an idol. We're run by them. We're motivated by them. And oftentimes they can even eclipse God. Here's the O. I don't know if you have a guess what the O is. Others. Idols can be people. Now, once again, remember, idols don't all have to be bad. God made us for relationship. God made us for connection. But like everything else, A good thing can become a God thing if others take priority over God, if our decision-making is formed by others rather than God. And so others can be idols. Here's the L, longings. Longings, when hopes, when aims, when goals become our main focus. When we have an agenda and a desire and I've got to do this, I've got to do this, and we're so driven by that and other things, even our priorities with God go to the back burner. That's when longings can become idols. And here's the S, self. Self, our successes, our achievements can become idols. Even our sufferings, if our whole identity is wrapped up in the woe was me, That can become an idol. I want to clear up a misconception about idolatry. Some people think, you know, the only idol I have is in this one area of my life. Let's say it's in duties. And in our duties, we say, you know what, I, I know, I really do put, I put my job, I put my status above God, and you know, there's plenty of times I end up saying, you know, I, I just have to do this. I know God's going to take a back seat, but I just need to do this, and so we end up um, putting our duties above God. And I want to show you, um, oftentimes we compartmentalize idolatry and we say you know what that's the one area i think it affects me but like this container of water idolatry doesn't just fit in one compartment and it doesn't affect the others if we allow one part of our life to be captured where God is eclipsed in it, it doesn't just stay there. So what I have here is a little bit of food coloring, and we don't need a whole lot. You know, this really isn't going to be much in comparison 
with the whole rest of this container. But you put it in and instantly it begins to taint all the rest of the water. I know some of you in the back are saying, I can't see it. This is just another perk, friends, to sitting up close uh, in one of our services. And these seats are no more expensive than the ones back there. What God wants in our worship is what he wants in our worship is purity. Let me just say what he deserves in our worship is purity. And that's just saying I, I have these five compartments I've given to him. He doesn't want individual compartments. He wants our lives. He wants our love. He wants our loyalty. And, and if we let drops come in where he's not number one, it affects all of us. Not just that compartment. You know, God isn't like a mutual fund where we diversify to reduce our risk. You know, if you spread it out and things go bad, you know, if you don't think God's working for you, at least you have this, or at least you have this, or you have others, or you have your job to fall back on. God's not like a mutual fund. God deserves all of us. We are to put all of our eggs in one basket with him. And the reason why is because he is the only one who can truly deliver. Here's number three. We understand that Hezekiah's values were shaped and formed in very significant ways. <clears throat> and a value that drove him was to be concerned with God's opinion, not man's. And, and then he, he realized we just can't talk our way out of something we behaved ourselves into. We need action. We need to do something about it. And then the third thing that he understood very well is when we go off course, take a U-turn. When we go off course, take a U-turn. I want to share with you one thing. This is a little bit farther down in our reading. Would you look down at verse 13 if you have your iPod open still, or you're there in that portion of 2 Kings 18. Look down at verse 13. This is an interesting thing. So here, Hezekiah trusted God, boom, did away with the idols, restored worship in Judah, and this was his slogan. And then even one part later on in his life, here comes the Assyrians. They were strong, they were tough, they were pummeling the nations around him, and Hezekiah got nervous. Look at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, so at this time he was 39, Sennacherib, king of Israel, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Look at what Hezekiah did. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Here's what Hezekiah told the king of Assyria. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria enacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. 
Catch this gang. Verse 15, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Can you see the setback? Come on, man. Like, Hezekiah, you were doing so well, man. You stood for the Lord. You turned all the worship around, and then Assyria starts to set in, and he's like, panic, you know, Sennacherib, here you go. Here's the gold from the temple. Strip it off the doors. Let's just take everything from our worship stuff, and let's just give it to him to appease him because we don't want to be taken over. And Hezekiah took a way bad turn right here. He got off course. And then something happened. Sennacherib sure took that, but then he was going to pummel Judah anyways. And look at his words. I, I want you to pop down. Look at verse 29. The words of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went out to all in Judah. And, and here's the quotation. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look down at verse 32. The Assyrian king still in Morvid's discussion says, until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, choose life and not death. Come with me and notice this. This was crippling. Do not listen to Hezekiah. He is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any other nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shervaim, Hina, Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And the people remained silent and they said nothing. Because the king commanded, don't answer him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth and he went into the temple of the Lord. The temple he just stripped everything from to pay off the king of Assyria. And it was a time of turnaround for him. He trusted God at one point, and then he said, you know what? I, I'm trusting my own idea. Let's pay off the king. And then when the king said, no one can stop me from taking over your land. No other God has, and your God's no different. I'm coming in. 
And Hezekiah came to a point of repentance and he broke down. This was his U-turn. And I have to move along through this a little bit more. He trusted God for the conquest of Assyria. And I love what happened. You can read on a little bit farther in chapter 19 when you get home. This very night, Hezekiah tore his clothes. He went into this temple that he stripped of all of the, of the valuables and gave it away. And he just came to, back to God and said, God, I've just blown it. Trusting in myself, I've made my intellect my idol and I have not trusted you. Here's what happened that very night. God stepped in, wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers all by his lonesome. And the army retreated and Sennacherib's sons killed him. Bam, game over. There was one other way that Hezekiah was entrusted asked to trust um, God. And here's what it was. It was through terminal illness in chapter 20, and I'm not going to read through all of that. The prophet came to Hezekiah and said, you know what, you're dying. And there's nothing you can do about it. And Hezekiah cried. And he went into the Lord and said, God, please. Would you rescue me? Would you turn around my illness? And before the prophet even got out of there, God told the prophet, you go back and tell him, I've, I've, I've answered your prayer. You've got 15 more years. I don't know, folks, if there are any more challenging times in our lives than number one, when we go through defeat or when we face the reality of death. And Hezekiah was tested. I want to tell you about a time when a friend of mine was tested with death. I may have even shared it here early on before. Um, an older man back from where I served in New York, his name was Arnold Nauman, a dear old guy. Had a great sense of humor. Every Sunday school class he taught, he'd pull out a funny and and, um, and just had a tremendous sense of humor, extremely practical. And I remember he had cancer. I went to his home and visited him, and I talked to him. And, and he tried to battle it for a number of years, and finally he came toward the end. And I got a call, and it said, um, Arnold wants to see you. And so I went to his house, and I'm telling you, gang, he was... He was skeletal. All the strength was gone from him. He was a tall, solid, military guy. And he was a frame. And he was in a seat and sunken back into it. And I remember talking to him and, um, and he reached in his Bible and he pulled out the little funny and he handed it to me. And, and he says, you just hold on to that, but I'm going to tell you. He says, here's the deal. He said, there's a story 
about a grandpa who pulled his grandma in. And he told her, he said, um, honey, one day grandpa's not going to be here. He's going to be in heaven. And she says, I don't understand. Will your body be here? And he says, yes. But you'll still be in heaven? He said, yes. She says, I don't understand. And so he reached over and he grabbed this walnut and he cracked it. And he opened it up. And he said, here, this is like grandpa. He says, this outer shell, that's, that's my body. And that's going to stay here. But he said, the real tasty part is on the inside. And that ends up going up to heaven. He says, honey, do you understand? She's shaking her head. And he says, so what did you learn? And she says, well, I learned that grandpa's a nut. And let me tell you, with strength that could only come from God, this man stuck his finger right out and looked at me and he says, and I want you to tell everyone at my funeral, I don't need that body anymore. And they might as well go and bury it because I'm going to be in heaven with God. Trusting God even through death. Hezekiah did it. And even when he screwed up, he made the U-turn. He said, okay, God, I blew it. I'm coming back, and I'm going to trust you for Assyria. Bam, God took care of it. I'm going to trust you even though I'm dying. Bam, God took care of it. And I'm sure he thought, why in the world did I trust anyone else? My whole slogan don't manage idolatry, destroy it. And he went back to managing it for a little while and God rebuked him and everything turned around and he learned his lesson. You just don't play around with idolatry. You don't deal with it. There is only one God and that's who we trust. And so here's the reality check for us. We all need strength. We all face idols. Pastors face idols. Our allegiance to God is constantly challenged in this world. Fear rises, and how can we face idols and win? And there's only one way. We need to be close to God. We need to be strengthened by God. We need him to come to our aid. We need to be in his temple and communing with him and opening up the reality of our lives to him. This is what I love about Hezekiah. It's at the bottom of your notes. His name is a combination of two words that put together mean this. Strengthened by Yahweh. Strengthened by Yahweh. Let's finish up here. We all get off course, folks. Prophet Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We all blow it. We all have those mini idols that creep in. And we've got to deal with them, not manage them. And when they creep in, talk won't get us on course. Action will. And maybe here you're, you're in here this morning, you're like, I, I don't even know where I am with God. Like, 
I don't even know if I'm going to heaven. I don't know what is going on with me. I just know that, yeah, I do have a lot of idols in my life. And here's the first step I want you to think about. God did something to allow us to have the strength to defeat every idol that comes in our lives. And this is what it is. He died on the cross. Jesus Christ came to earth. He died on the cross for our sin. He can free us from any stronghold or stranglehold that can shackle us in our lives. And we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and for forgiveness. And that is a faith action. Give your life to God. First step. Second step, get busy removing idols. Don't get busy managing them. Don't merely try to reduce them. Don't think, you know, over a period of time we can phase our way out. Move them. And then we think, what are people going to think? Don't worry about what people think. Worry about what God thinks. Let's don't manage idolatry. No one deserves God's seat at our table. Nothing deserves God's seat at our table. It's all about him. Would you stand with me? Father, there is only one. There's only one God. It is you. And personally, God. And I believe even collectively with our friends here, we acknowledge the reality that we do let things creep in. And whether they be items, whether they be duties or others or longings or self, God, we let things get in that should never be there. And we confess it. God, help us, like Hezekiah, to be people that are concerned with how you view things, not how others do. May we be people of action, and when we blow it, God, help us to turn around, stop, to come back to you, and to let you take control. There's only one God. It's you alone. You deserve that spot. And we give it to you today. Amen. So what's your life slogan? You may say, you know, I don't have one. I, I really don't. It's kind of true. Maybe you don't have a stated slogan. But the truth is you don't need a stated slogan for people to know what you're all about. Your life slogan is what your priorities are, what your actions are, what you spend your money on, what you do with your spare time, who you orbit around. Your life slogan is what they say at your funeral. And for Hezekiah, his slogan was, don't manage idolatry destroy it. Pick an idol this week. Let's do a little crushing this week of some things that take the place of God and keep him at number one. Amen? Amen. Hey, God bless your week. 
God bless your ministry and the lives of other people. We will see you next Sunday morning for worship. Have a great week.